Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. On Nerdette, we like to say that nerd is a verb. That means it's not about what you love. It's about how much you love it. So you could just as easily be a nerd about, like, Doctor Who or calculus as you could about baseball or board games. We like to talk to all sorts of different people, from authors to astronauts, about what it is that they're really excited about. This week, it's someone who, if there was a fight for an iron throne of internet nerdery, (laughs) she would be a contender because she is one of the greatest nerds in all the land, Felicia Day. Felicia Day is known for her roles in Supernatural and in Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. She also is the mind behind Geek and Sundry, which is a website that has like all sorts of different blogs and shorts and shows, a lot of really cool stuff for all of your nerdy needs. She also wrote a memoir. It's called You're Never Weird on the Internet. Almost. Parentheses, almost. It's about her upbringing, which was unusual, and it talks about finding your tribe online. The good people of Women and Children First Bookstore here in Chicago invited us to do something that we don't get to do very often here on Nerdette, which is talk to someone not in a studio or by phone, but in front of hundreds of nerds (laughs) in the church. In a church. So this recording is from our conversation with Felicia Day at the Ebenezer Lutheran Church in Chicago. So author of You're Never Weird on the Internet, Almost. So let's start with the almost. Why almost? Um, there's, there's certain things on the internet that I don't want to direct two people to, but <laughs> probably shouldn't exist. We are in a church. I know. I don't want to say <laughs> what it is. There's some just, sometimes you just randomly stumble on something. Like you, you search like llamas and butts and things come up like you do not want to go there like oh dolphin gifs like violently attacking your face i don't know <laughs> i mean i'm sure you've like accidentally stumbled on something on the internet you're like whoa why did i get here it's always llamas too so it's funny you brought that <laughs> really? up. Yeah, yeah, no. they have cute faces <laughs> they're terrified of umbrellas that's a fact really what? yes Wait, what? So there's, if you if you raise like show llamas, one of the tasks you Wait, have to what? do in the competition. I grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere. And with so, llamas? They were they were near. But one of the things you have to do with the llama, if it's like a well-trained llama, it won't freak out if you open an umbrella next to it. But if it's a poorly trained llama, it will. So you carry an umbrella just to test llamas out, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I have to you know, bartitsu is a real word, and it's the name of the art of fighting with an umbrella. What? Yeah, guys, when I was in Vancouver doing Eureka, I I would drive to the set every day. You get driven because you don't actually have a car. And every day I would drive by this, uh, a sword fighting academy. What? And I wanted to go there so badly. (laughs) So I started doing dagger lessons on the weekends, which led to Dragon Age because I just wanted an excuse to use my dagger skills. (laughs) But the guy who taught me daggers was a bartitsu specialist, and he mm. was a professional umbrella fighter, so he would take some llamas down. Wow. 
these are not on the list of questions that we very professionally prepared. Sorry. This has derailed so successfully. <laughs> with me. One thing we like to do on the show is talk about origin stories, right? I mean, we're all nerds. We're familiar with sort of the notion of like the superhero origin story. We want to know your origin story. You seem now to be so comfortable with this idea of being a weird person. Was it always that easy for you? I think because I was homeschooled, I didn't ever know that I was weird um, because the environment I was in accepted me. So I just thought that it was fine to like program your day to watch Lost in Space and to show your grandfather some calculus and then play five hours of video games. So it wasn't the most normal thing. I'd never had a test until I was like, you know, 15, 14. Man. And I never got up before like 10 ever. <laughs> so like it didn't feel weird until after I actually started writing the book when I realized, oh, this is some, this is weird. <laughs> this is some out there stuff, Felicia. No wonder you can't connect with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> So uh, I guess the biggest adjustment was when I tried to fit in in Hollywood. And a casting director told me once, your outsides don't match your insides. And then he rejected me and did not give me a job. So I don't know what, what? which way he was rejecting, the inside or the outside. Ooh. It's always bothered me. It's like, well, what, what did it mean? What did it mean? Was I prettier on the outside than on the inside or the vice versa? Was I don't know. Just, was he just like too steeped in this ridiculous notion of like fake geek girl? That he no, that was this was way before geeks were cool. <laughs> this was, there weren't any geek girl parts at all. That was way <laughs> that was before. <laughs> it was actually I, I. It was for an audition for Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Did anybody watch that movie? I remember that movie. <laughs> And so are you disappointed in the end to not have participated in that No, I didn't get it. Project? I didn't get that movie. It was uh, the girl who does Once Upon a Time got it. So it was me, Jennifer Goodwin, and Sarah Rue in the, in the audition. And, anyway. and their outsides matched their insides. Obviously. <laughs> they were pure through and through. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> so, but growing up and, and being homeschooled, you must have had some moments where you, you know, you, you realized that other kids were going, you know, to, to public school or to private school or whatever it was, but were there points when you felt envious of, of that? I wanted to get out of the house a lot. Like, I literally would do research and come up with, well, here's a boarding school in Switzerland I could go to, Mom. I wanted to go straight to college at, like, 12. I was like, I'm ready. Let's get this thing on. Give me an apartment. I wrote my mom's checks anyway. Like, she never, I actually t t played all the bills all my whole life. There's a lot more weird stuff I left out of the book because then child <laughs> services would probably call <laughs> retroactively. They like oh, retcon in the call. That, no, my mom was fine. She just was kooky and like I took care of a lot of practical things. Mm -hmm. Was it allowable for you to like find your own interest within that environment? So you said you know you're playing a lot of video games. You're you know you're you're watching Lost in Space. You're doing calculus. Were you doing those things because you discovered them on your own, or were you sort of absorbing the the things that were in your environment already? I think I was absorbing. I mean, I did a lot a lot of lessons, but so you know I would go to like play practice and I go to ballet practice and I go out, but only in a lesson environment. So it was never like unsupervised. Um, so I didn't get bullied until I was an adult. Yay! <laughs> 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 I guess once you're an adult, it, is it? I don't know. Is that worse? Is no, it, it's no? not easy. It's not better. It's not better. <laughs> it's not better. Because I'm still squishy on the inside. I'm like That's a, why you don't match. <laughs> it's true. I'm hard. I got a hard shell, like a, like a Jordan almond on the outside. You're a Jordan almond. <laughs> like an angel food cake on the inside. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Felicia. There are a lot of really excellent takeaways from this book. I think some of my favorites have to do with your work ethic, just because so often, I think, especially in this day and age, we tend to overemphasize the importance of talent and that idea that you just 
magically get to do all of the great things when really these things take really hard work and often it is sweat, blood, and tears and, you know, you are busier than you ever want to be and it's really intense and kind of horrible but also really re rewarding. I think playing the violin, I was a violinist and I started playing when I was like two or three and I, when I would get bored oh. I would just go play. So nobody really pushed me to be like awesome at the violin. I would just had so much time on my hands. So I was like, I'll go play for a couple hours. So I think, and, and you know, wanting to be, be able to play like I heard on the tapes and CDs and things like that made me work really hard at that. And I think that taught me that everything is incremental. And I, and I do believe that that was the best thing that I took away from that. And, and you know, I, I think I write in the book a lot about how I had problems writing for many, many years. And I, I particularly struggled writing the Guild, which was my web series that I wrote that kind of started everything in my career. And that actually suffered from my idea that I wanted to put down immaculately conceived uh, you know, paper. I, was, I don't know why I'm pointing at this guy. Uh, guess what? There's a story about him, and I can tell it. Um, Jesus. So, yeah, I thought that in order to write, you had to have it perfectly formatted and know exactly what you're going to write down, or you shouldn't even try, and you're a failure. Ooh. And I think that that was really hard for me. Even now, I struggle with a little bit, but you know, now that I've, and especially writing the book helped get over that, knowing that you just have to start plowing the snow, and then you got to go back, and you'll plow more snow, and then you can, I don't, I don't know anything nice about snow. I like just it. don't know anything about snow. <laughs> That's as far as that goes, because I've never lived with snow. You guys live in the Arctic. Yesterday was awful. It was like 40. <laughs> Pretty sure it got up to 56 degrees yesterday. Oh, God, it was so cold. I almost died. I almost did. <laughs> I think I lost the tip of my finger, so. So let's talk a little about the Guild, because I think it's one of those amazing stories that I love of sometimes you you shouldn't wait for permission. You should just make the thing you want to make. It sounds like... Always do that. Should, should we always do that in this day and age? I mean, like, do you think that if you had just been shopping a pilot script around for that idea that you would have, you know, would you be here today? No, I would not be here. No. I mean, I've done that in Hollywood the last couple of years. It's incredibly frustrating. Like, they do not want to do anything that's not exactly what they, you've already done before. And uh, that's what I don't want to do. So it's a struggle. And yeah, had I ever sold the show to somebody in Hollywood to sort of grow, quote unquote, which means give up, which means probably have killed the project. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I, you have to partner with people in order to get to another level. Like, you can't do everything yourself. And, like, I think the, uh, the chapter I did on depression and anxiety shows that you can't take everything on, especially you want to get bigger than what you can do. But you have to go the distance and do as much as you can, I think, and know that, okay, I need help at this point, not before that. That's, I guess, the biggest lesson that I learned in that particular circumstance. Um, and I think, especially if you're an artist, if you just sit back and wait for somebody to say, hey, that's good, get it out there, or hey, you know, go work on that. Like, you'll never do anything. And I think everything is a long-term goal. Everything is not precious. So maybe you just need to write that one thing badly in order to get to the next thing that you're going to do better. So I think what, whatever your, your art form or even a hobby, just start making things because you're never going to get better unless you make them. I think, too, there's a certain element of that as a young woman, right, where, like, you can't sit there and wait for the authority to be the voice that you want to have, like you have to just actually do it and own it and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, man or woman, I think at least for me, uh, I see a tendency of women to wait for somebody to be like, you go, girl, you know, not that, but... Um, <laughs> 
but like, like I we think wait to get called on. But often. men are are raised to think, okay, you're the leader. You're the one who has to take care of the family if you know things go south. Like you have to be responsible. And I think women are not told that. Like nobody's like turning to the little girl in a movie and be like, take care of the family. You know, when Timmy's over, like that's never going to happen. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> like it should, but like, but I think that's a cultural thing that probably affects women in really being like, well, I have to plow ahead no matter if this person is rejecting me or not. I mean, that might be a broad generalization, but I think, you know, I just remember this, uh, there's a scene from, what is that Brad Pitt zombie movie? Uh, World War Z, right? And like those little girl characters, I just was like, push them over the boat edge. Like they were so useless. <laughs> and they would just like whine in the most inopportune times. They were just awful. They were just awful. And like, there was a kid they found on the street who was a little boy, right? They're just like, come on, random boy. And then Brad Pitt, <laughs> This is stupid, but anyway, it just irritated the crap out of me because, like, first of all, raise your girls to be less whiny, Brad Pitt, all right? They're, <laughs> you know, they're just flopping around. It's a zombie apocalypse. Shut the H up. So, and then they pick this random kid up off the street who's adorable, but, like, when he has to go out for a mission, he turns to this random kid as, like, take care of the girls. I'm like, Ooh. you just met this kid. He's like six. I mean, given that how he raises kids, I wouldn't trust them to do much either. But like, it's just like anyway. That scene always stuck with me as something that irritated the crap out of me. Get baby doll. Daddy's gotta go to work. I'm not a baby. Okay, tall, beautiful, tiny adult. Take care of the ladies for me. Deal. You're awesome. Daddy's coming back. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. And you are listening to a very special edition of Nerdette. This is a live taping of a conversation that we had with actress, author, and internet force of nature, Felicia Day. Let's talk about women on, on, you know, in, in movies. You know, we see all sorts of sort of uh, 538 and some other sites have done some really good breakdowns lately about like how often women speak in films compared to men, how yeah, often... Yeah, turns out men talk a lot more in movies than <laughs> women do. Are you wow. surprised to hear that? No. <laughs> but, but what do you see as, as progress? Like what are the roles you're seeing um, available or the, you know, the things that are in production now that you think are maybe heading us in, in the right direction? I think there is a broader uh, scope of, of women roles. There are a lot more, um, especially TV shows that are anchored by women in leading roles. And I think just the more visibility of that, the more somebody will consider 
you know, mixing up a lead role, be a woman instead of a man. I, I don't think that it's like this phenomenal thing that couldn't just go backwards. Because if you, if you look at the 80s, there were actually a lot of leading women in a lot more powerful roles than even now. And there was a big dip that kind of went, I think, backwards because it really doesn't give the opportunity for women to be fully realized as far as the different kinds of, of roles for women. You know, I just recently went out and auditioned for a lot of pilots and I would read these parts and I'm like, well, that's a dumb wife role. Just put a little effort into making a character versus like, oh, I just need to fill the blanks between the guy speaking. Mm -hmm. And especially in comedy, I see that more so. I think genre, especially since genre is more prominent now, I see a lot more awesome uh, roles for women, you know, like Sleepy Hollow. I mean, there's just a lot, you can go down the list, Expanse, like there's so many like more balanced casts in genre, and that's why I love that nerds rule the world now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it takes a sci-fi or fantasy world to put women in, you know, characters in prominent positions, which is kind of sad sometimes, but... You have um, to go several, uh, you know, centuries into the future for it to make sense. Exactly. Or we're all like wearing loincloths and having lips in our hands. <laughs> I don't know. That would be a good show. I would watch that show. <laughs> I just, I think the, the key is probably just having more women behind the scenes, you know, because whenever I do a performance, especially voice acting, they're like, just be more likable. Ooh. Like, I get that all the time. I'm like, am I being a bee? You know, what is, <laughs> no, I'm just having an opinion, but it's like, no, you can't have an opinion that might like sort of derail what the guy's doing. Because honestly, especially in comedy, guys just act like idiots. Like, is that idiot dad and the, in the practical mode? I don't know. I could go on forever. But I think it's getting better, and I would just encourage women to get more behind the camera because that's where the real power is. When you're a director, you're a writer, you're an executive. I mean, really, the actor is the last to join, so they don't have any power at all. Yeah, yeah. We're, I think we're, we're making some progress. But, yeah, I think you're right. Genre in sci-fi has, has often broken those barriers when it comes to gender yeah. or, or race. Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew, Janeway. <laughs> It's just a moment of silence for Janeway, just an appreciation of the siren, <laughs> the siren going, going by. by. Really, I just wanted us to stop talking until the siren went by because it's going to show up on the mics. But yeah, yeah, yeah we, you know, when we, when we talked to Kate Mulgrew and we talked about what it felt like to be on the set of Orange is the New Black and have it just be this incredible environment where there's not one or two women on the call sheet, there's women behind the camera, there's women in the writer's room, and there's women of all ages and races and you know, body types and orientations on, on that set. And I think that you know things like Netflix and Amazon and people just doing it themselves, totally DIY, is is opening doors that weren't there before. Do you think that that will have to sort of trickle over into the broadcast world, like into pilot season, or should we just look for the shows that represent us more on the internet? I think I think the great thing is that we can have whatever entertains us take up our time now. And there's so much like video games or videos or television or movies or go back and watch, you know, Family Ties. Like, you can binge watch <laughs> anything now, and there's so much to consume, and you can really tailor make it to who you are. And I think, you know, network broadcast TV is just going to follow the money and the prestige. So, you know, the kind of things that are giving prestige to people, awards, or just people are watching it, they're going to gravitate for it. So that's why Empire is such a huge phenomenon, and that's influencing a lot of casting this year with more African Americans in leading roles, and I think that's wonderful. So really, it's just about establishing the precedent but to me, you know, I think it's great to have shows like that where they're all women on the cat. But like my ideal is that women and men can work together and they just see each other as creators and not male, female. I mean, that's my ideal world. It's a little naive, but I know that when guys go out to drinks, they're not necessarily inviting women creators to come out with them because there's all these taboos about hanging out with, you know, there's a lot of 
sexual dynamics that prevent men and women being co-patriots as creators. And I think that's something we just have to work toward integrating in a more even manner to get real parity. Looking you up, there's a lot of this phrasing, queen of the geeks. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'd like to know, I know you're like, you're a little conflicted about that phrase, right? Well, it's just like something the media uses as a shorthand. It's easy to describe me. And that's cool. Like, I'm not going to reject it. It's like, I, what's wrong with royalty? I mean, royalty? it's pretty sweet. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like, to me, I don't, I'd rather be Grand Duchess or Ooh, something. Okay, okay, okay. Let's make that happen. Yeah, I feel like you we know, can do that. Like, you're not the responsibility. It's not on you, you know? Sure. You're not like considering yourself above anybody. You're just kind of like, I'm comfortable. Yeah, you don't have to rule, like, handle the Navy. Yeah. You just get to yeah. like, go to all the good parties. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I'm not ever going to call myself that because I think it does set you up above somebody or like have a leadership position that isn't is just kind of superficial in a way but I do I am proud of being a leader not having a label which is kind of a hipster thing to do I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hipster I can't help it I like artisanal baked goods <laughs> so do you, there's there's a little bit of a, a debate we have on our show sometimes about the difference between a geek or a nerd and a hipster and and I would say that a hipster likes things until too many people like them and then feels sort of uncomfortable with continuing to like the thing because it's like, oh, now everyone's watching the thing or listening to the band. Whereas, like, for me, being a nerd means that it's like, more people to talk about the thing with. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you fall, you think, on, on that spectrum, on that particular point? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I like doing things. I'm kind of a hip. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Safe space. I'm not like, say. I'm not like, oh, I don't like that thing anymore because everybody's liking it. I, I don't like the loss of nuance because mm -hmm. I think, you know, to me, especially I uploaded a video a couple years ago about this because Geek and Sundry, you know, I was being pushed to do a lot of things that I didn't know that I wanted. And, you know, I mean, Geek and Sundry was supposed to be, they wanted me to do just a women's geek channel. And probably if I had done that, it would have been a bigger success faster because it would be easier to understand. But to me, I always wanted everybody to come together and just enjoy it together. So we're all on an equal playing field. And that probably hindered the growth of the company. Although now I think it's awesome because our community is everybody. So I got what I wanted <laughs> in the end. But it was really hard in the beginning to do that because that's not what advertisers thought. You know, oh, it's not clean and easy. And you know, to me, when geek culture, especially a couple of years ago, got kind of blew up and got popular because everybody started hopping on the internet and seeing that geek people ruled the internet and oh, that's the cool way to be on the internet. Then you got sort of like people losing the nuance and just being like, hey, geeks are people who wear capes at a convention. You know, like <laughs> there's a lot more subtlety to that. And I think it's, you know, to me, geek culture is people being themselves genuinely and expressing a love for something and that helps connect them with other people and being okay with being an outsider, just embracing that and not needing to get rid of the things that make you separate in order to fit in. So like that, and it's does not fit on a t-shirt well, guys. But, <laughs> but that's the zeitgeist of authenticity that I consider to be inherent in who I, I am as a geek. So when authenticity starts to go into shorthand is where I start to resist things. That's fair. I like that. I don't know. I'm not a hipster. Don't call me a hipster. <laughs> you, you brought up the H word. I mean. Oh, I'm a hipster. <laughs> I ironed the shirt. <laughs> it's very it's very smooth. Just want to tell you that. I, I iron I ironed for the first time in 5 years for you guys. So <laughs> Thank you.
listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson. Let's get back to our conversation with Her Duchessness, Felicia Day. So much of your success has been rooted in the time that you've spent and the things that you've made that belong on the internet. And I was just wondering, I mean, you know, you mentioned that geek culture, so much of why it thrives now is because so many of us were able to find like-minded people on the internet for the first time when maybe otherwise we would have been sitting and feeling isolated wherever we were. And I just wonder too though, I mean, there is also, there are such negatives in interacting on the internet too. And I was wondering, you know, Where do you think it falls in the end? Is it a good thing? Are we glad that we have it? I mean, I mean, I, I think the internet is a beautiful place and that's really what I wanted to put in the book. And I I included, there's a chapter in the end about Gamergate and all this negativity that I'd encountered and I I encapsulated in one chapter because I didn't want to not acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of negativity and, and toxic things that can be as harmful to people online as they would had they happened in real life. But ultimately, it's a tool for good that expands your universe. Like if you're a kid in you know, a really small town in Kansas and you don't have anybody like you around you, um, you, know, you can either be depressed and feel like, oh, I have to abandon who I am in order to fit in, or I can actually see that there are people outside here who I can connect with and I can be myself and I can explore the world even though I don't have that in my real life. And I think that's a wonderful thing because the saddest thing is that somebody abandoned something that's true to themselves because of being bullied or peer pressure. So that I think is a beautiful thing and it allows subcultures to thrive. Like there are a lot more people making a living doing something beautiful that was not a viable, like I don't know what this career is, like it's weird. (laughs) I don't exactly know what I do, but I work really hard, but I do a little bit of everything and that would not have been possible 10 years ago. So I think it's wonderful and I think that the bad things just have to be actively patrolled against, just like when we were like cavemen and some troll starts like hitting somebody <laughs> on the head with a club. Like we got to do and something about when that there guy. Was an actual troll. <laughs> the actual we troll. Out what to do about exactly. It. Yeah. Who's responsible? Do you think? I mean, is it the crowd that needs to do it, or do the platforms themselves need to have more of a, an active role in in handling this kind of bullying and this vitriol that we see? I mean, ultimately, we are uh, working free employees to make a bunch of tech people billionaires when we use social media. I mean, it's just true, right? Like we're expressing ourselves and we're like, hey, there's a thought or here's a link to something. That is enriching a white dude in Silicon Valley, (laughs) like (laughs) ultimately. So like we're giving ourselves freely so they can make money off of us. That's their job to make us safe. And whether it's giving us the tools to be able to make ourselves safe or really taking aggressive, you know, actions like, that's their job. Nobody's opening a coffee shop and is cool with some guy like shoving your face in French toast, right? Like they're going to do something about that guy. <laughs> so like, you know, it's not a public space. When I'm in Twitter, I'm in the Twitter coffee shop. Like, give me some tools, man, or at least let me hit the guy who's shoving my face in French toast. <laughs> right? So if you really think of virtual space as real space, these companies I've been coasting for years upon people's freely given expression. And like no one person is important to them. It's the aggregate. So the more we can come together as an aggregate and say, this is not acceptable. Your space is not safe or acceptable for us. You need to work on giving us the tools to make ourselves safe. Then I think that is where the power lies. But you have to demand it because ultimately, if they're coasting, why bother, right? 
And I, th- I forget who said it, but if something's free, you're the product is sort of the rule of the internet. Yeah, right? exactly. And people don't really think about it like that, you know? I mean, it's, it's almost as if, hey, here's, you can have the privilege of reviewing my video game or the privilege of coming <laughs> and taking a, a picture on my set. I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I don't think so, you know, because you're, you're ultimately benefiting from it and what are we getting from it as a person? We're getting the exposure to people who can shove our face in our virtual French toast. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that was my radical viewpoint on social media. <laughs> Tweet it. Tweet <laughs> I think, too, the, the one other point about the pro-con of the Internet that I wonder about is the power of finding your tribe online is, is intoxicating and, and wonderful, but in a way that wasn't true before, your bullies follow you home because that physical space that may have been a sanctuary for you as a kid, like... You really love horses, and kids at school make fun of you for loving horses. Let's go with llamas. Sorry, sorry, I forgot llamas, the, the, yeah. the appropriate callback. You love llamas. You go to school. Kids make fun <laughs> of you for loving llamas. But when you go home, it's okay to like llamas. But now, via Snapchat, Instagram, whatever the tweens are using these days, the people who are making fun of you at school are following you home. And there's this pressure to always be plugged in, to always be logged into these platforms. So I worry that that there are people who, you know, everyone in this room is, I think, old enough to have not had to do that at 11 and 12 years old, to not have to have that pressure of, like, the social pressure of being an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, didn't follow them 24 hours a day. And I think that that's scary. We're not thinking enough about how that affects young people, both boys and girls, to have to sort of perform their life the whole time. No, it makes you very sort of self-conscious. And I think as somebody who wants to create, if you're always plugged into other people's opinions of what you are and how they're reacting immediately and, and outputting immediately, then you're not able to gestate something that's could it be bigger than the immediate satisfaction? And like that, I've been actually logging off a lot more recently because I just want to write. I mean, I've just been concentrating on writing more. And I do notice that the minute I start reading comments that are just like uh, either complimentary or insulting, like inside I can feel that little creator like, ugh, start to touch a second guess or think, think about the things that are not important in creating. So I agree. And, you know, especially with girls, I mean, if I have a little picture of myself, and this is men and women reinforcing this, I will get like four times as many thumbs ups as if I just give them the most beautiful shot of like a street in Barcelona. It looks like an album cover, you guys. And I'm like, why does this not have more thumbs up? And I'll be like, here, have this. You know, and then I get like three times as many. I'm like, what's going on? So it is bad. And I think, you know, I don't think it's confined to women, but I do think women get more of it. That They're getting reinforcement by being showing their looks, leading with their looks online. And I don't like that per se, because that really is training you to look for praise and gratification through only your superficial. I think that's kind of a drawback of the internet that you know you just have to be aware of. I'm sure everyone here is wondering what's next for you. Yeah, I decided to take the year off. I'm not doing conventions except for book tour and I'm writing. I just decided I was really gonna take writing seriously. Like the last three years has been awesome in running a business, which I never thought I would get into, but now I actually have the time to breathe and sort of re-emphasize that part of my world, which is more creating, so writing and acting. So that's kind of what I'm doing, and like learning to live well, <laughs> which is weird, but you know, if you read the book, there's a whole chapter on anxiety and depression that I write, and 
a lot of people come up to me and said that that's a really valuable lesson for them because they didn't really realize the patterns of behavior they had in their own mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. and they sought help for it. And really writing the book for me was as therapeutic because I didn't realize the extent to which I was slave to my anxiety and I had the ups and downs that were pretty destructive. And you know, the, earlier this year I just decided, hey, this is my job to like learn how to live like a human and not be afraid all the time, a failure or not getting ahead enough. And it's been a real adjustment, but ultimately I'm much more enriched and I have a lot more fertile creative world inside my head that I want to get out because I have learned how to live a little bit more functionally. So, you know, that's a big goal and it doesn't seem like, oh, that's not impressive. Like what, what movie are you doing next? But to me, my whole, <laughs> no. the rest of my life will be much improved because of that work I'm doing now. So I'm really happy about that. And hopefully that will allow more creative things to come out later this year. All right, so let's just say a big thank you to Felicia for being here today. Thank you, guys. Felicia is at Felicia Day on Twitter and the YouTubes, and her book is called You're Never Weird on the Internet, parenthesis, almost, end parenthesis, period. <laughs> Special thanks this week to Sarah Hollenbeck from Women and Children First Bookstore for helping make that conversation with Felicia Day happen. And to the good people of Ebenezer Lutheran Church for letting us talk about llamas in their sanctuary. <laughs> this show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault and Colin McNulty. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because, in fact, you are currently listening to us. But we would really appreciate it if you would take the plunge and subscribe or follow us on iTunes or NPR One or wherever it is you're listening. Special thanks to those of you who give us some stars on those platforms. Thanks in particular to Alden for the iTunes review. He says he loves the show because of the array of topics. I like when math words get used in real life, so I like that we have an array of topics. An array of topics. A spectrum of subjects. A matrix of... A matrix of notions. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter, at Nerdette Podcast, on Instagram and Facebook, and Snapchat, I guess. Yeah, Snapchat's really happening? Yeah. What's our little handle thing on Snapchat? Nerdette Podcast. Okay, Nerdette Podcast. That's where we are. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where there are podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Music nerds, check out Sound Opinions. Movie nerds should be listening to Film Spotting. Find out more at wbez.org slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.